When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Uh, you may not have heard that first bit, Kieran, as I just realised I was talking into a microphone that wasn't plugged in, so I had to turn my chair around. Um, <laughs> 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 BAFTA's gone already. That's a record, I think, isn't it? Um, later in the show, we'll be hearing from Martin Cassidy, uh, he's chief executive of Ref Support UK, uh, an independent registered charity which supports referees at all levels uh, of the game. It's it's a really eye-opening interview. I'm sure you'll agree, but we, we do have some new stories, Kieran. But first, I think we need to um, we need to acknowledge that there's been a big story down on the south coast. Your your beloved. Saint Graham Potter has gone to Chelsea for three or four months, um, but you have you have a new a new manager. Uh, your, what are your thoughts? Um, he, he's come from Ukraine. Uh, he's an Italian manager, Roberto. Uh, I, I think uh, you know an expression from Graham Potter is to raise an eyebrow. Yeah, that's about <laughs> as much as you ever got from him. Uh, I, I think we're going to move slightly more towards the Conte style of touchline expressionism. Um, so, so that will provide uh, some entertainment. Well, yeah, new managers, you, you always look at them with a bit an element of curiosity. I want him to be a success. That's uh, he certainly seems to play the same. Yeah, he's coaching his uh, same style of football as as as, as the Potter ball, which you've come mm. to know and hate. Um, so <laughs> we look forward to it. Yeah, he's a, he's a fan of all-out attack, apparently. So let's hope he forgets about the defensive bit. Um, our first news story, Kieran, is something that you you predicted a while back, um, and I wouldn't say I scoffed, Kieran. I wouldn't say I, I, I poured scorn on the idea, but I, I thought it unlikely. But it turns out, uh, as always, that your insight. And judgment was clearer than mine because uh, UEFA executives are considering staging Champions League matches outside of Europe. Yes, um, and I think this is part of a much broader issue with regards to how are club owners, in particular, going to extract more money from the game. If you've got uh, a home fixture at Old Trafford or the Bernabeu and so on, uh, your, your regular season ticket holders, there's 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 a fixed amount that they, they are prepared to pay. Mm. If you decide to take those matches to New York or Beijing or, or Sydney, um, and, and we saw this uh, with the uh, Liverpool versus Manchester United friendly, which took place in, in Thailand over mm. the course of the summer, you can charge what you want. 
because there will be people there say, well, this could be my only chance of getting to see Real Madrid uh, play in, in a competitive game um, for many, many years. And, and therefore, the, the, the prices that can be charged are, are, will be, will be eye-watering. Um, so this is something, and the way that sort of UEFA and the European Club Association work is that you know, stories get leaked uh, on purpose, say, well, yeah, well, we're thinking about having discussions in respect of this. It won't be on the agenda just yet. And, and part of the reason for that is that uh, the UEFA Champions League format isn't being revised until 2024-25 when we move to the Swiss-style model. But remember, clubs have more fixtures under the Swiss-style model. So why not take one of those fixtures to a foreign market? Uh, because it's going to generate more money from the club. Now, yeah, I, I'm I'm presently sitting in my university office in Liverpool. Uh, I, I share my office with uh, my, my good friend Chris, who's uh, you know who's a red through and through season ticket holder. And uh, as you can imagine, he's not very happy because yep. he's he's not missed a home game for, yep. for God knows how long. And uh, the prospect of Liverpool play, playing a, a what he considers to be a home fixture uh, you know, against opponents is is completely against the grain of how we perceive football to be. But club owners don't perceive football to be that way. Or as we say, some club owners, especially the American owners, and this this is this isn't being xenophobic. You know, the American owners see football as, as a global sport, as a global form of entertainment, and they want to take it to a global audience. Uh, we see football clubs as representation of our individual towns and cities, part of our history, culture, heritage, all of those things which we hold so dear, you know, the badge, the colour of the shirt, the stadium, and, and everything that goes with it. Um, but the owners want to make more money out of football. And uh, I think we will see this initially. I think the talk is of one or two of the, the group games, um, then perhaps have the, the, the main knockout phase take place uh, as normal, sort of home and away. But uh, you know, we saw a couple of years ago, and, and this has been hinted at by some of the executives at UEFA, that uh, remember when in the in the uh, in, in the COVID year in, in which the the semi-finals and the final all took place in the same city over the course of a week. Yeah. Well, why not take that to the highest bidder? So you've got you've got uh, you know, one-legged semi-finals, just like you know, just like you have semi-finals in a World Cup and the final. And that's all taking place, uh, you know, would Tokyo or New York or, or Sydney be willing to bid and pay a huge amount of money to host that? Well, yes, they would, because the Champions League is is the type of tournament, you know, ap- apart from the World Cup final, it generates some of the biggest viewing figures on the planet. So um, that's, that's the way of the world. Now, what we've then got to ask ourselves is, well, if that's successful from a UEFA point of view, yeah. where does that leave the Premier League? Yeah. Because you know, we'll be we'll be talking about this fairly shortly. But you know, over half of the clubs in the Premier League now have uh, US uh, either full owners or part owners, and and again, this, this this isn't a dig at them because they're American. They have a different perception of football because 
they, they weren't brought up in South London. They weren't brought up in Brighton or Manchester or Liverpool, and and, and they see they see football from a, from through a different uh, a different lens, and it's a financial one rather than an emotional one. There's a few things off the back of that, Kieran. Firstly, I'm I'm still quite cross that Australia take part in Eurovision. To be perfectly honest, uh, <laughs> if if it then turns out that the UEFA Champions League final was held in Sydney, I would be apoplectic. Secondly, as you said, once again, it's fans who get the shitty end of the stick because that Liverpool fan you share an office with, who goes home and away, there'll be many people like him who will find the money to get to Singapore or Tokyo or whatever it is, and you know that could be coming. From, from God knows where, at a time of, of global economic crisis, in a few years' time, there will be fans from this country who do what it takes to get the money to go. Thirdly, I'm happy to have a go at the American owners. Uh, it, it, it terrifies me that they could end up with a majority in the Premier League and essentially do what they want. But the American owners should should know that you know NFL fans were apoplectic, as, as cross as I would be about the Champions League being in Sydney. They were furious when one of their games was taken away and played at Wembley because you know they play far fewer home games a season than, than our clubs do. So not only did they miss the chance to see a game, they didn't get refunds on their season tickets. Or certainly the, the friend of mine lives in America, they met, that may have changed. But it just annoys they, you know, so American owners know that it upsets fans, but they do it anyway. It just it's so infuriating, really infuriating. Anyway, luckily there's a story coming up that's going to cheer me up. This this story really has to. It, it, I, I should technically say it gives me no pleasure to report that Brighton are on a naughty step, but I'd be lying, and I'm not a very good actor, so. Any any anger already? The anger from the first news story is is ebbing away, Kieran. As I, I I have to say to you, Brighton, Brighton have been fined, Kieran. Brighton have been fined for breaking agent rules. For shame, Kieran. For shame. Indeed, indeed. And just just a, a quick t- t- taking ourselves back to the first story. Perhaps if we had an independent regulator of football. <laughs> As proposed by my good friend Tracy Crouch, then, then that, this could help to uh, protect the game. Uh, that was a coupon buster. You've gone in early there, Kieran. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back, um, to the, the, back to the biggest yes, story. Back, of football, back to this story. The biggest news story right, in football so, so, this decade. So, so what's happened here is uh, I, I believe Brighton been fined around about three hundred and sixty thousand pounds, and this is uh, in respect of a breach of the rules relating to intermediaries stroke agents mm. um, and I, I think there were there were quite a few players involved so when Brighton got to the Premier League um, they, they, they you know, first time you, you, you sign you signed some players and, and then I think the club effectively did some form of internal audit um, and and during that they, they realized that they they'd seven players who, who didn't appear to have representation as such um so the the club reported itself to the fa say we think we've done something you know there's been the club says it's an administrative error um but the the way that this works is that as we as we've established that um agents in, in respect of transfers and deals and so on they they can represent the club or they can represent the player now um hmrc are 
not always comfortable with this. Um, and, and I spoke to uh, our, our friend Jonathan Booker here, and, and yeah, and we've we've yeah we've we've laughed in the past that that HMRC uh, only have two people who are effectively uh, scanning the the football industry. Mm. Well, I, th- I think they might they might have taken on an apprentice, <laughs> so so they might have a bit more. Um, and if uh, if if the if the football club pays the agent's fees on behalf of the player, then that's a benefiting kind, and that has implications for PAYE and national insurance. And of course, if and, and, I, and I don't know the exact details in case in, in respect to the Brighton case, but um, also you know things such as VAT, a football club can recover VAT from an agent who's VAT registered, whereas you know just like. You or I, if we have a tradesman come to the house and they give us an invoice and then they charge VAT on VAT on top, we can't reclaim them that unless it's a cash job, um, which clearly we would, you know, we we wouldn't agree to anyway. Um, so, so that's that's been the issue. So, so Brighton did report themselves to the FA. The FA have investigated um, and they they find the club. Um, I, I suspect, and I'm not, and I'm not trying to do some whataboutery here. Again, sort of you know, speaking to Jonathan, he says, "Well, he's actually surprised that there's not more clubs who are uh, being involved with this because it's it's not an uncommon potential issue which could arise." Um, so, you know, if, if you've got seven players who don't appear to have uh, agents involved in deals, that that that's unusual, uh, you know, and, and yeah, I think it could be argued that it should have been spotted at an earlier stage, but it wasn't. Um, so, so that's where we are. So, yeah, we're on the naughty step. This next news story, Kieran, I, I probably should have included uh, slightly earlier, you know, considering what we were talking about in our first news story. But I was so excited about getting onto Brighton being in trouble <laughs> that I had decided to keep it. But um, it it looks like there is another Premier League team that could end up in American ownership. Yes. So here we have uh, AFC Bournemouth, uh, who are presently owned by uh, a guy called Maxim Denim. Um, and he, uh, yeah, he's Russian-born, but he, he is a British citizen. Yeah. Uh, I, th- I think he lives in Switzerland. He's, he's owned the club for about a decade. Uh, I think he's spoken about half a dozen words since buying the club. He uh, he controls Bournemouth via a company called Fortina Enterprises, based in the British Virgin Islands. So all, all of that is he's textbook ticking a lot of boxes, isn't he? <laughs> he's ticking a lot of boxes. Yes. Um, so you know, why is he thinking of selling? Well, you know, I, I talk to people who get involved in deals. Yeah, this this has been on the cards for quite a few years. He's been looking for an exit route. So just because he was Russian-born, it, it doesn't mean that it's, this is due to, to the, uh, the, the illegal war that's taking place in Ukraine, uh, instigated by Putin and his cronies. Um, you know, Demet De- 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 has been looking for an exit route for some time. He's, he's put a lot of money into, uh, into Bournemouth. It's around about 150 million quid. I think he's, he's looking to get his money back. Now, it could be that he's been looking to get his money back a little bit quicker following the war because we, we don't know where 
his assets are located. Um, and we, we know that you know, people with a Russian background are perhaps subject to additional scrutiny. So um, it looks as if uh, it's now going to be sold to a, a gentleman called Bill Foley, who is a 77-year-old American investor who owns the, uh, the Golden Knights um, ice hockey club ice hockey team franchise uh, based in that uh, that that place that you associate with ice uh, Las Vegas um, <laughs> so he he bought a franchise uh, in in the NHL what's called an expansion franchise so the way that American sports operates is that when they want to increase the number of teams you effectively have to pay a franchise fee uh, which which can you know, can run into hundreds of millions of dollars um, you know, why is he buying into football at the age of 77? You know, that, that might seem a bit of a strange thing to do. Um, and, and trying to work out his motivation is strange. But, you know, it, it, Premier League clubs, and we're probably talking somewhere in the region of 130 to 150 million pounds here, which, uh, you know, is it, cheap by Premier League standards. Uh, but I think it reflects that uh, you know, a the Bournemouth Stadium's quite small, and b you, you always factor in the, the the possibility of relegation. And clearly, you know, Bournemouth have, uh, have have only just come up from the uh, from the Championship you know, after, after a few years uh, in, in the pre, in the Premier League previously. Um, St- Sterling has tanked. Uh, yeah, uh, I've just I've just seen come through on my ticker. It's just now gone to a record low once again for around about forty years. So that makes Premier League football clubs very attractive and very cheap from an American investor point of view. We know that Asian investors, uh, especially Chinese investors, have uh, have gone pretty lukewarm with regards to. Uh, investing in the Premier League because of a changing sentiment from from the Chinese government, um, I, I think uh, Bill Foley is more likely to be perhaps a bit more of a visible presence. Um, certainly, he by all accounts he attends every match of the Golden Knights. Um, he he did appear in a, in a promotional video uh, for the Golden Knights uh, piloting a helicopter in army uniform, which no. which might upset. Uh, Harry Redknapp and the other residents of Sandbanks. If he <laughs> if he tries to do the same at uh, at Bournemouth, uh, he's also got a record of uh, being a bit trigger happy when it comes to uh, sacking managers. Right. So yeah, I, I think yeah, a, a change a change in ownership, and it, and it could I think a sort of a change in in culture uh, at, at Bournemouth uh, if if the new owner comes in. So it, yeah, this deal does appear to be pretty much uh, you know pretty far down the road so we'll have to wait and see but um i'm there, there's certainly no reasons why there should be any owners and directors tests mm. uh, pr- uh hurdles to, to significantly overcome so uh, we could see this deal go through quite quickly uh, man city uh, are not short of money kieran as we know but they've got a bit more in their pockets this week haven't they yes um this is because the the american Funds called Silver Lake, which bought uh, it, it bought just over ten percent of Manchester City uh, a couple of years ago, and it bought it for five hundred million dollars. Now, it, this this here is buying the City Football Group, so it's not just Manchester City ah, itself; okay. it's uh, all uh, of the, those other you know, right. ten to twelve companies uh, dotted around the world. But they they've just bought another four percent 
uh, in the City Football Group. Um, and uh, yeah, originally, uh, Silver Lake were very much uh, a tech investor, um, and, and they used to, to concentrate on the area. But remember, yeah, we've had this discussion about Manchester City are trying to be at the the, the forefront of of the metaverse yeah. uh, with with regards to uh, you know what's happening in the stadium to to try to get fans more involved uh, who are watching matches elsewhere and they've got that deal with Sony. Uh, also, Silver Lake have expanded into rugby and baseball, but I think it's a sign of of the confidence of once again another American investor seeing football as being beyond what we are familiar with in terms of pies, pints, turning up, yeah, you know, uh, giving our team as much support as possible. Um, and, you know, I, I've spoken about you know, bringing the stadium to the fans instead of the fans to the stadium. If, you, if you've got the, uh, if, if you've got uh, fans on a global basis, and I, I suspect that some of these investors are, are taking a similar viewpoint. So, um, so can yeah. I just can I just in, ask? In, yeah, can I just ask you which which way round would this have happened? Would Silver Lake have gone to the City Group and say we want to invest more, uh, or would the City Football Group have gone to them and said, "Do you fancy uh, buying a bit more because we're short of money?" Well, uh, yeah, City Football Group aren't short of money. Yeah? I think that's the one thing that we we can be confident of. Um, the, the chances are that you know, there's always ongoing discussions between major shareholders and, and, and corporates. And um, what will happen is Silver Lake saying, well, we've, we've got spare cash. We we want to uh, increase our involvement. If they, that, that will, this will take them up to around about 14%. Um, you know, that's, that's not going to disturb cities. Uh, majority shareholders uh, right. based in uh, UAE, so you know they, they still control the club on a day-to-day basis, and they get the benefit of additional cash. But but it's almost certainly coming from Silver Lake, looking to say, well, you know, we have we have funds, we need to put them somewhere, and and as part of our assessment, we think that the City Football Group uh, is is an investment. Can we agree a price? And rumours of another Man City story this week as well, Kieran. Yes, um, this is, uh, you've got to give credit, there's a really good uh, Twitter account called uh, Josimar Football, which I, th- I think is, I think it's Norwegian, they're the sort yes. of investigated journalists, and this involves um, a regional partner of Manchester City called 8xBet, um, which appears to be sort of focused in Thailand, Indonesia, Vietnam. When you, or rather when Josimar footballs start to look at it a little bit more depth, um, the founder of 8xBet, you, you can't find him on the internet. He appears to have no digital footprint at all, which is unusual in 2022. The CEO ha- appears to be using an avatar borrowed from somebody else. So <laughs> trying to get a picture of the CEO is difficult. When you then move across the other realms of social media, um, 8xBet only has two employees on LinkedIn. Well, if it's you know, if, it, if it's a regional partner and we're dealing with you know, very sizable countries in Thailand, Indonesia, and Vietnam, yeah, you know, that that again, it's just it, it, it doesn't pass the smell test. Yeah, you, know, mm. you just feel a little bit uneasy. If, if you take a look at Manchester City themselves. Um, 
they they've not mentioned the deal as such on on their Twitter account. Um, they seem to be using uh, Teddy Sheringham, this is ATX Bet, to sort of be their ambassador and you know, record a few videos. But these are being watched by two men and a dog on on YouTube because there, there's little promotion for it. And, and then then there's sort of a mysterious link to an organisation called QOO, which very odd and that appears to be based in dubai and, and that you know is that controlling atx that it's it's just it, it it's not good from a transparency point of view um you know manchester city did have uh, an involvement around about 12 months ago with uh, another organization which which all went sort of uh, very wrong very quickly and i think that was very quietly dropped um and all I would say is that yeah, before you get into bed with anybody, just just, just check them out. You know, you, it, it's you do due diligence for a reason. And City here appear to sort of yeah, we've used this phrase "blinded by the check." They appear to have taken the check, but what exactly are they getting involved with? And, mm. and and that's of course a concern because if you are a high profile football club, you're, you're going to come under scrutiny. So the best thing to do is to do that, that homework yourself. And, you know, and then this could of course be absolutely nothing. Yeah, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the organization. It just doesn't look quite right. Well, it's interesting because that, I believe that previous case you mentioned was a, a cryptocurrency partner that again, turned mm. out, turned out to have no, Start didn't exist essentially, and, and Man City were very, very quick and very efficient in in dealing with that situation. So it'd be, it would be odd if they had allowed it to happen again. So that's clearly one to, to keep an eye on. Um, West Brom, Kieran, we're, we're used to uh, managers resigning every now and again. Uh, a politician resigns; that's you know, less rare. Every now and again, a chairman of a club resigns, but there's been s- <laughs> some strange resignations at West Brom, Kieran. Yes, um, and, and not for the first time. This uh, West Bromwich Albion's auditors, who uh, who are PricewaterhouseCoopers, who are one of the biggest you know, yeah. firms of accountants on the planet, um, they've quit as the auditors of West Bromwich Albion. Now, that's the fourth time in the last seven years that the auditors have quit. Um, and yeah, the, the whole point about being an auditor in the first place is that you're trying to build up a relationship with an organisation. And yeah, there is a case for saying you shouldn't stay there too long. But equally, if you're only there for a year or so, you, you're not you're not becoming familiar with the organisation to, to really get uh, really get your feet under the table. And yeah, the purpose of the auditors is to uh, is to effectively uh, review the finances and to say whether or not in their view as professionals that they, they show a true and fair view. Um, so for PwC to, to resign pretty quickly after being appointed and they're not being the first people to do this, um, it, it's a red flag. Um, and also the finance director of West Brom has left. Now, he's actually gone to Brighton. So, uh, you know, so I don't know whether he, don't know he was headhunted or whether he was looking for another job. But so their, their finance director has gone as well. Um, there's a very, very strange looking seven million pounds loan to the owner of the club, Lai Guo Chan, 
which apparently is going to be repaid when West Bromwich Albion pay like Wow Chan a seven million pound dividend. So yeah, that's uh, yeah, that that is uh, very much uh, sleight of hand. Hang, hang on a second, uh, in, in so terms the, of sorry, Kieran, sorry to interrupt, but just to clarify, so the club. The club have lent him seven million pounds, yeah. and he he will pay that to the club when the club give him seven million pounds. Yes, As, yeah. So yeah, that that just, again, yeah. Well, I just mentioned the smell test. That that looks very strange. He says that that his own businesses back home have suffered as a result of COVID. Um, when when uh, a a company makes a decision. Uh, that decision, if it's made at board level, um, you have what's referred to as a fiduciary duty. I don't want to go and sound you know, too even more boring than normal, but th- that that duty is that you must act in the best interests of the company, which is here, West Bromwich Albion Football Club. Now, is it in the best interests to lend money to somebody um, – when it could be argued that that money will be better spent on signing players, investing in infrastructure, uh, and, and so on in respect to West Bromwich Albion Football Club. There are some other unusual loans going back a few years in respect of a previous owner, which don't appear to have been repaid. And there's also an organisation called Shareholders for Albion who who represent all of, I think, uh, like Al Chan, I think he owns about 80, 86% of the club. But there's uh, there's an organisation called uh, Shareholders for Albion that represents sort of lots of individual shareholders who have collectively come together and are flagging some of their concerns about the governance and operational activities of the club. Um, they wrote to the board, which they're entitled to do as shareholders. They wrote to, to the board um, a few months ago with 40 questions, which were pretty detailed. And the response of uh, West Bromwich Albion is to completely ignore them, which which I think is uh, is a sign of, of, first of all, unprofessionalism and, and secondly, contempt. Uh, you know, shareholders, no matter how small they are, that they are entitled to, to have their voice heard. Uh, you know, normally, that's just at the annual general meeting, but you know, th- these shareholders do represent a sizable, uh, if, if albeit minority, uh, part of the share base. And uh, you know, if, the, if the club can't find the time to uh, respond to shareholders, then, then who can it find the time to respond to? So, um, yeah, not, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's pretty unimpressive behaviour from the people who are making the decisions at that club. Do you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to find, Kieran, that there's a, a fairly sizable football club that are managing their finances the same way that I do, which is pretty much not a week goes by without me yeah. saying to Ali, can you, Ali, can you put some money in the, in the joint account so I can get some stuff and I'll pay you back when I've put some money in the joint account, which is pretty much the same logic. Um, just down the road, Kieran, Coventry are a club we both like. We both had happy times there. We talk about them more often than I would wish, but they've taken a huge hit cash flow wise, haven't they? Recently, yes, um, and this is because uh, due to first of all, sort of uh, yeah, legacy issues with regards to uh, the, the is it called the CBS Arena? Yeah, whatever. Coventry Buildings. Uh, no, Highfield, it's, it's the Rico. Highfield, Highfield Road. Star still called it Highfield, Highfield Road. Road. Yes, <laughs> yes, that'll do for us. Um, 
they they've missed out on on they've had to postpone already this season four matches. Three were due to uh, outstanding issues with regards to the landlords. Uh, and of course, we've had the the the, uh, the passing away of Her Majesty. So therefore, another match was missed at home, and, and uh, th- this means that, uh, that, that Coventry have hardly played at uh, at their home fixtures. And yeah, from a cash point of view, yes, those matches will be rescheduled, but it's cost them over a million pounds wow. to date. And yeah, as you've said, the important thing here is, is cash flow. Um, they will get some of that money back at a later date. I think one of those matches was supposed to be at home to West Brom, which would have, you know, ironically, the club we'd just been talking about. Yeah. Um, but that would have had, if that had been a 3 p.m. Saturday match, it would have been round. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that's the downside. It's, it's people who go to the, um, people who go you know, to to the matches as walk-up fans and, and sell out the ground that, that can make a big difference. Will that be the same if that match is rescheduled for February on a Tuesday night, which might also be clashing with Champions League or whatever? Uh, and and you know, we, we have been talking about uh, Champions League a little bit earlier. And, and this is one of the things which, unfortunately, the EFL clubs have to deal with, is that their matches clash with Champions League matches. And, and, it, and it does happen. A, a small, but it is a noticeable decrease if you compare uh, attendances at Saturday compared to midweek. And yes, yes, yeah, there's people that can't get there for work reasons. There's kids that can't get there because they've got school the following day and so on. Yeah, I have to take all of that into consideration. But yeah, it, it's it's a shame for Coventry because uh, yeah, they had a good season last season um, and uh, they're, they're presently at the bottom of the championship. Mm. Part of the reason for that is, of course, they paid fewer fixtures. Yeah, they've played. They've only played away games basically. So, um, yes, uh, I, I believe they're looking for compensation for at least one of the uh, postponements because uh, from the Commonwealth Games organising committee. Because I think they claim because the Commonwealth Games used it for rugby sevens, was it? I think, but and, and so they claim that they let that left the pitch in a terrible state. But I believe the Commonwealth Games are saying that the pitch was left in a terrible state due to a a gig that was played at Coventry. So that's another situation Mm. to keep an eye on. Um, We've got a couple more news stories, Kieran, before that brilliant interview with Martin Cassidy from Ref Support UK. The first one, unfortunately, uh, I'm afraid to say, people will chuckle uh, listening to this. They shouldn't, but they will. Um, Swindon Town (laughs) have got a a big bill to pay for an unfortunate reason. Yes, um, yeah, you and I, we, we both attended matches home and away for many, many years. And uh, at times, we get angry. Oh, yeah. you know, it could oh, be yeah. with the performance. It could be with you know decisions going against us. It could be just, yeah, it's just one of those days. Um, but you, you still, yeah, if, if I go to somebody's house and, and they serve me a bad meal, I, I, don't, I don't go and lob a brick through their window. Um, and if somebody comes to my house and I cook them a bad meal, I don't lob a brick through my own window. <laughs> but this is what some, and I, yeah, it, it, this is a minority, um, some of the Swindon fans have been um, smashing up the seats and smashing up the toilets at their own stadium. Yeah. And, and this, is, this just doesn't make sense. Yeah, we all get frustrated with results. Um, you know, Swindon have just been through a period of a takeover where the previous owner, Lee Power, I think it's fair to say, 
wouldn't be on our Goodens list uh, in terms of club ownership. And the, the new owners come in, has reduced the debts, but yeah, they've still he's not he's not a billionaire. He's putting in huge amounts. They're trying to reduce the debts, and it's just sort of. It's costing the club money. It's now having to go and spend a lot of money repairing damage because you you can't have people coming to the you know, subsequent matches to to say, well, here's your seat. Oh, by the way, there isn't one there, um, and you you can't go to the toilet because the toilet's been smashed. So um, yeah, Swindon Pets, it, they, they're just simply punching themselves in the face, and and, and that's I'm, I'm I'm not condoning smashing up away grounds because yeah, that's just. Just as rude, uh, but smashing up your own ground uh, is—it's just plain daft. I'm glad you made that distinction, Kieran, because I, I was going to say we we aren't implying that if you're going to smash somewhere up, don't make sure it's not your own ground. Don't, don't do it anywhere. Yes, yeah. it's, it's more than rude. It's it's just stupid and wrong. Um, we've talked about streaming rights, Kieran, uh, quite a lot recently. Um, especially at the National League level, uh, but there's been news. Yes. Uh, I mean, you know, clearly Wrexham, the, you know, uh, Ryan and uh, McElhenney were, are the drivers in respect of this. Wrexham are very keen to uh, have streaming of matches. And I think also the way that they, they suggested sharing the money was um, pretty egalitarian. Um, so you know that they felt that there was a market for this, um, and there has now been a pronouncement by the National League that they are uh, they are bringing out their own OTT, which stands for Over the Top platform. Uh, and what this is going to do, they, they've got an agreement with BT Sport uh, to 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 broadcast some matches, and and the agreement is going to be it's going to start in the second half of the season that they're going to stream the non televised matches. Um, and also the matches which are not kicking off at 3pm. And you might be seeing people might say, well, hold on, surely most of the matches kick off at 3pm. But remember, we are now seeing um, in, in non-league football um, as a result of the, the cost of living consequences. And remember, those cost of living consequences, especially when it comes to energy costs, yeah. do have implications. Football clubs, because if you've got your floodlights on, uh, that's that's a, a sizable additional cost. So if those matches, which are now going to be kicking off at twelve thirty or one o'clock, they could be televised. Oh, sorry, they they could be streamed um, to people who can buy passes. Um, you know, the Wrexham have picked up a lot of interest because the the uh, uh, yeah, the, the the Welcome to Wrexham show, which is which is on Disney Plus, is. It's a good little watch. Uh, you know, yeah, that's yeah, all yeah. I say. I've, I've watched every episode, and it, it, it's it's uh, it's whimsical, but it does also give the opportunity for the fans and, and the people around the club to voice themselves. Um, and and it, yeah, it's uh, it's it's certainly good fun as, as to watch as a fan. So yeah, there, there will be people who uh, would have taken an additional interest. Whether that's enough to persuade them to pay a tenner to watch an individual match. We don't know, but until you try these things, you, you, you don't find out uh, just uh, just what are the financial consequences. So, yeah, fair play to the, the National League. It's not being rejected out of hand. Um, the important thing, it's 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 not just the pie, it's how you cut it. And, and I think the, the distribution of monies, I think, is is the is the area which uh, needs to be dealt with with, uh, with with a bit of tender loving care. I, I believe, Kieran, um, 
And if I'm wrong, I know there's a director of Chippenham Town out there who'd only be too pleased to tell me so. But I think at the moment, it's only Isthmian League and below level that have been given permission to kick off early. But I'm, I yep. think what I'm hearing is almost inevitable that by the time December, January comes, the National League will also be giving their teams permission to kick off early because the energy crisis is only going to get much worse before it gets better. One final news story, Kira, before our interview. Um, there's about to be one hell of a financial bun fight in Germany. Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, the, the the Bundesliga TV rights, um, they are they're up for auction. Um, they've they've not increased in value in in the same way as we've seen with La Liga and the Premier League, and and part of the reason to that is that the German football, which, which I personally love, um, we know who's going to win Bundesliga every year. Yeah, it's going yeah, to be yeah. Bayern Munich. Yeah. And the problem with football is that if you have a dynasty, as far as the the winners of the trophies are concerned. Um, trying to persuade people to pay for those rights becomes more challenging. So we, we've seen a flatlining of, of German rights. So, so what's happening is that it looks like uh, the, the German authorities, they're going to go to private equity companies. And uh, uh, when I... When I when I wrote the price of football book, I did actually have a chapter which said, uh, you know, "What has private equity done for football?" and just left a blank page. <laughs> but the publisher said, "You can't do that." Um, I said, "Well, I, th- I think fans." He said, "Fans won't understand it." I think I, th- I think fans will understand that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not I'm, I'm not a huge fan of private equity in the sense of private equity is not interested in football; it's interested in money. Um, but we have seen organisations such as CVC invest in La Liga and Ligue 1, and uh, by all accounts, there, there's about half a dozen uh, potential suitors for the Bundesliga, and, and we're probably talking figures of around about three, three and a half billion euro for uh, for money coming into the sport, and then you're selling the rights for a sizable period, giving them ten to twenty percent. Um, and that, that's the trouble. You know, and and you know, I've mentioned this with regards to uh, Barcelona as well, that if you give somebody 20% of your income for the next 25 years, um, that will give you some money now. But it means you know, in a few years' time, Barcelona have got 75% of their TV revenues and Real Madrid have got 100% of theirs and Chelsea have got 100% of theirs. And, and then all you're doing is you've, you've got another problem to deal with. Uh, so... It, is, is it a short-term fix? Potentially could be seen that way. Um, in my experience and observation, when it comes to negotiations between private equity companies that do this for a living and uh, football administrators, private equity tends to win in terms of who's got the best out of the deal. Uh, funnily enough, Kieran, when I uh, wrote my book, Who Are You? 92 uh, league clubs and why you shouldn't support them uh i initially left the brighton page blank uh but on uh on the other side of it on the why you shouldn't support them bit i just was going to put because it's brighton but uh, my publisher also wouldn't do that but not not for reasons that the audience wouldn't understand but because brighton has a huge number of independent bookshops and one of the biggest waterstones in the country so 
unfortunately, <laughs> financial issues were considered more important than, than my rivalry with your club. Now, Kieran, it, it's interview time, and VAR was supposed to make life more easy for referees, but instead, recently, it seems just to have put them under more pressure than ever before. And it doesn't occur to many of us that these people under pressure are human beings as well, as are all those young match officials who keep the game going at grassroots level, sometimes under enormous provocation. So we asked Martin Casti of the only independent charity for referees, Ref Support UK, for some insight. I'm Steve Lamack and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight Stuart Dredge on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode we discuss the very latest goings on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Martin, thank you very much for joining us. Tell us a little bit about yourself first and then your work with Ref Support UK. Yeah. Thanks, thanks, Kev. It's great. It's great to be on with you two guys, a regular listener, and, and I really do uh, feel quite humbled coming on here as a guest. And yeah. the re- the reason we started it up, my background is I, I got to the professional level as assistant referee, got injured, um, and contacted the FA and said, "Oh, you know, I'm going to retire." And then they said, um, "Well, look, these jobs are coming up as a as a referee coach to find the next generation of referees coming through the semi pro into the pro level." So do you want to come for an interview, basically? And I went there. I worked at Wembley for seven years in the referees department. Left under a bit of a cloud. Uh, it was redundant season. Um, I was one of the guys that got re- made redundant. Uh, questioned it, really. Uh, ended up in court. Wow. Right. <laughs> and then I've got a, a non-disclosure agreement for certain subjects in it. So while I was there, I realised that there just needed to be a bigger voice for referees that wasn't funded uh, by the FA or any governing bodies. You know, the Referee Association has been a great organization for referees for years but they've never spoke publicly or criticized the fa publicly um because they they, they were and i think they still do get funded by the fa and the pgmol so they never do anything to criticize them publicly so i said well, i want to start an organization but it must be a charity and the reason i wanted it to be a charity was uh, if it didn't if i just talked to martin cassidy ex-employee of the fa i'd just become a, this bitter ex-employee but if it's charities talk and people tend to listen a bit more so uh, all, all the trustees have, have operated at pro level. Um, we're all really experienced in supporting referees. So, you know, to do it under an umbrella of a registered charity was, was definitely the right way to go. Mm. I didn't know about your non-disclosure agreement, so I'm just crossing out three of the next four questions. <laughs> <laughs> Only three. <laughs> I was going to, and also interestingly, normally it's Kieran who answers my questions before I ask them. But I was, I was going to ask you about the importance of them, um, of being a charity, and also specifically, specifically the importance of being totally independent. Your website really stresses the importance of the total independence, doesn't it? So clearly, that's something that means a lot to you. Yeah, it does. It absolutely does. And what happens in football, particularly refereeing, is that people are, you know, people are scared to speak out because 
they fear consequences for their opinion. You know, there's a there's a regulation in, in a football for referees where they can't step out of regulation, believe it or not. Yeah. Uh, and I remember a, I had this big, huge case where um, one of our ambassadors got charged by the FA for writing to a club saying, we know you just got off with that case, but we know you did it. So we're going to record you in future. Bit of a, you know, so behave yourself. Yeah. And he got charged by the FA, even though it was in, a, in our ambassadorial role on our email. And the FA lawyer said, oh, no, you can't step out of regulation from the FA. You, whatever you do, even if you're a police officer and you write a letter that they deem to be inappropriate, they can charge you, which is ridiculous, isn't it? So, yeah. <laughs> It's, yeah, um, we we have ascertained that they can't actually charge Kieran and I, which is a great relief because we would be in big trouble. How do you how do you fund Ref Support UK then, Martin? We do it mainly from donations. We've even had um, uh, a referee passed away, and he, he said all the donations to come to um, come to us. We get lots of donations, sponsorship. We get um, there's a there's a, a company called Find My Kit who who sponsor us. And when we have an event, we like to hire a football club. Don't go to a posh hotel and give some money to the football club. We put on free foods. You know, we have really good speakers there and um, they get funded by sponsors. So we've proven that none of us get any expenses. None of us claim any fee. So we've proven that you can support referees to a really high level without without any, any money whatsoever. It's just a passion and a drive to support referees. That is the currency we use. And how many referees do you represent, so to speak, Martin? And, I, I, and are you representing only grassroots level refs, or are you representing those match officials at the very top level? Yeah, we, we mainly concentrate on grassroots level. There's a, a lot of people don't know this, actually. I don't know if you guys know this, but most of the referees uh, support a pro level, PGMO, PGMO level, uh, by the Prospect Union. They, oh, they, I didn't they, know. They, yeah, 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 they That's are. Yeah, so. It is interesting, and uh, they've done a, a great job, you know, with, you know, getting you know maternity leave and employment rights, even though they're not technically employed, holiday pay, and you know, there's, there's some wonderful work that Prospect Union has done. I actually feel that the support that PGOL give their referees is 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 good, is really really good. It's it's the FA and the county FAs that we have our problem with, which is where we we sit in regards to how to address it. We try to connect what happens at the pro level back to the grassroots level and. We've always said, I don't know if you've seen it, I had a bit of a row live on TalkSport with Neil Warnock because he, <laughs> he, he went out he went, he went out of referee. He went out of referee and uh, I can't remember what player it was. There's a player who had butted one of one of um, his players when he was at Middlesbrough. Yeah. And he, he went out of the referee and said, you know, you're a disgrace. He, he did all the pantomime antics. So I was talking about this on TalkSport and they said, look, we've got Neil on the other line. So um I just said to him, look, you know, why did you go after the referee? He never headbutted a player. Why didn't he go after the, the, the player who headbutted your, your, your player? You took the easy option out and he wouldn't have it. So it's, what I try to connect them is that what people see at pro level and on TV gets mimicked by grassroots level when there's a 14, 15 year old referee in there. And it's an important link that we always try to make sure is out in the open. You know, how do these kids learn about, you know, we're an Aldo goal celebration or piece of couch robot they, they do yeah. that purely from on TV so it would be ridiculous to say that they wouldn't mimic the behaviour the poor behaviour that you see with people like like Mr Warnock and others well I mean the frustrating thing from your point of view is that, is that Neil Warnock and, and you're not the only person to have had live arguments with him trust me uh, he's a qualified he's a qualified referee isn't he well yeah but you know there's people out there who's, who's, who's had qualified um, 
you know, and other trades and it turned out to be, you know, not very good. And I think just because, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I could be really cutting here, you know, with certain doctors and stuff that you just think just because you've got your qualifications, it doesn't mean you, you, you know, you've got any credibility or validation to be able to go at a referee and abuse them and threaten like, like he does. And one of the weirdest things a ref can hear is, oh, don't worry, ref, you know, particularly grassroots when they've got the flag. I'm a qualified referee. It's probably uh-huh. the worst thing you, anyone yeah. could see. But, you know, has he refereed, you know, has he refereed, has he gone out there week in, week out and refereed? No, he's took the course and probably did a game for some TV show, really. So uh, I, there's no credence in it, him saying he's a qualified. And also, when did he qualify? You know, yeah. many years ago, many, many years ago when, you know, the game's significantly different. And I, and I think uh, I give no credence to him at being a qualified referee in inverted commas. Before we carry on, can I just pick you up, Martin, on something you said there about the the PGMOL refs and yeah. uh, pros- prospect. So you say they're not technically employees. So what what is their status in? Because I think most of us thought as professional referees, they they, they count as no. full-time employees. So No, I think the Championship and the Premier League is classed as full-time employees outside that League 1, League 2 and the, the conference level or National uh, League, as it's I've, called now. I think they're, got they're not full-time employees. Right. Yeah, so we, and it's one of the problems with, with, with quality referees coming through because some... Some quality referees who, who could really do a, a really good job on the Premier League and the Championship won't go there because they're on more money in their occupation, the current occupation. So you know, not getting paid enough at that level to give up these jobs. And of course, like a player, you know, you could, your career could end quite quickly as a referee with an injury or, or anything like that. So there's there's something that needs to be looked at there with regards to. So, you know what they get and, and who who they attract. Yeah, we're going to come on to the finances later. I I think Martin uh, doing some research last night and looking at your website. You, it's a much bigger figure than I thought because you talk about there being twenty eight thousand match yeah. officials at grassroots levels, which is a, a huge number. What what are the biggest challenges that they face and that you face looking after them? I think a lot of it is um, a lot of referees. Just feel disenfranchised from the governing body and the county FAs. There's the county FAs basically that are normally limited companies and are not for profit companies where they just work on their own under a, an umbrella of the FA, but they basically, basically can do what they want. And the biggest challenge we find is, is that, you know, very early on, oh God, four or five years ago, I started up at um, a 24 7, 365 day a, a hotline where they could phone up because. When you referee at the weekends, all the officers are closed. Oh, a lot of the people oh, who, who support course, referees, yeah. so they so they can't get any sort of instant support, and a lot of them just need this sort of like shoulder to cry on, so to speak, or have I done the right thing? Is this right? So that's why I started it, and that's why we know we absolutely know the figures that the FA put out: no point, no one percent of games, you know, contain a proven case of assault. That's just ridiculous. And when you do you dig down into that, that's two a week. That's actually two proven cases of assault a week. Yeah, now, that's just reporters, and and what we find is that Mark Clattenburg is definitely in Tottenham, Chelsea, that famous game. He lives in Newcastle. He's not going to bump into any of those players at grassroots level. Everything is localized. So when someone does get assaulted or abused or threatened, it's highly likely they these referees are going to see these players on the school runs in the pub in the supermarkets where this abuse can continue and it does continue. So this disenfranchisement is just the main problem where. They don't feel as if, I, particularly the FA, the county FAs, will go that extra mile to support them off the field to play when something like this happens. The biggest that's, problem. That's that's a really interesting point. That that idea of 
referees being local and bumping into people that might have assaulted them or they may have sent off. And also, I don't know why, but it's the third time this week someone's mentioned Mark Plattenberg to me. People, the, <laughs> the, the universe seems determined to remind me of the referee that hated Palace more than anybody else. Are you working with 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 clubs, Martin, particularly at the highest level? Do do you have a presence there? Do they ask you for advice? Or, or no, are you... no, they don't officially. I, I do. I, when I was having a go at Warner, the secretary of um, Middlesbrough emailed me and said, "You know, how dare you? You know, call him a pantomime character and all this." And I just <laughs> went back to him and said, "Well, what are you doing, employing a pantomime character? Because you are. Yeah. He's just." Everywhere he goes, he becomes this pantomime character on sidelines, and it, you know. So, well, mainly it's grassroots, and we visit, we visit clubs. I don't know, uh, I don't know if you're aware of it, but cl- if clubs get to a certain level of discipline, so many yellow cards or red cards, they get a fine, and they go into the um, get called into Wembley to um, to get preached to, really. Saying if you carry on, you know, this will happen, that will happen. So we go into clubs and talk to referee, they talk to players about, you know. Do you really think mouthing at a referee and giving them loads of stick is going to get him or her to change their decision? And what I do, I always do a bit of research with them and find out, you know, why they've been cautioned, talk to other referees who refereed them. And invariably, it's very rare that some of these grassroots players are getting cautioned and sent off for mouth. It's always physical challenges. Uh... And, and you've, it's, it's, no, that's, that's the other way around, the other way around. You always find they get sent off and second yellows for, for stupid challenges after they've had a silly yellow for descent. Right. So what we always say is, what, why when you know you're on one yellow, do you do something stupid on the second yellow and make it dead easy? And then you just get like stupid comments which you'll hear in football saying, oh, come on, ref, it's only his first one, particularly in derbies or cup finals, where they then say, let's be consistent, but they want you to have a free go at a player. So when we talk to these players and we identify, we say to them, look, you know, do you realise that you're saying this? Do you realise what you're saying to it? to a referee and why do you think a referee would give you anything in the last 10 minutes when for the previous 80 you've been on on their case giving them loads of sticks so it's like when you say about subconscious bias I think it happens in a game I think it would be unfair to say that referees can just get so miffed with players being on the case that they might not give a free kick that, that they would normally give we've got to be honest about that I um a friend of mine referees at quite a low level he said uh, recently first 10 minutes of a game uh, he showed a yellow card to a player for very very abusive offensive language and the captain of the team said look I'm sorry about this but he's got two rats so mm. the ref the ref said uh, alright then but he hasn't sworn for the first 10 minutes and if he doesn't swear again in the next 10 minutes I'm going to send him off so, because obviously it's just the captain just panicked and came up with this bizarre excuse. I mean, that's the sort of thing that refer- sort of thing referees are coping with. What's the attitude of, of other people in football towards you, Martin? Do they take you seriously? I mean, not just the referees' association, but other players' groups. You know, because I mean, one of your biggest problems is even researching for this. It, it, it's sometimes hard in in a way that you know, Kieran's colourblind, and we take mm. it very seriously. We take it very seriously, but it's sometimes hard. To have that much sympathy, and it, and it's 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 that's the difficulty with refs. When someone's been a football fan for as long as I have, many people in the game, I suspect, would would think that referees were bottom of the pile when it came to sympathy, which I'm sure is an attitude that you come come up against from other people in the game. Is that correct? Absolutely, it's one of our major obstacles. Is that, yeah. um, and it's why I purposely chosen a, st- a strategy to go at clubs on social media. You have a go at, I've even had to go with Gary Lineker. You know, yeah. the, 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 it's this desensitisation of, of, of referee abuse that people 
just think it's always been there. It's all, referees have always been fair game. People, I even remember this on our podcast that you come on, uh, Kev, I had Troy Townsend on. Yeah. And Troy Townsend said, oh my God, you schooled me on on Twitter. And he uses he uses the clip of me and him talking about it. About, um, he was given, he's been fighting racial abuse in the game for decades, done a wonderful job. And I said, cause that we're, you know, we're behind too. And he, you know, but he he was naming the referee in one of the games. I think it might have been a Palace game when Andros was there, yeah. and he was he was he was giving the referee loads. And I said, "Oh, hang on, Troy, on Twitter, you know, why why are you doing this? You think it's it's perfectly right to have a go at referee, but you can't, you know, you, you can't say anything, you know, from a racial point of view, which you yeah. yeah, And it was an opening for him. He said, "You know, you if Twitter was used that way, it would be such a better place than it is now because." I did point out to him, like, look, you're just as guilty of, of giving the abuse online, but you attack a different form of abuse. Yeah. So when we realized that attacking all forms of abuse, which is why the body cam campaign was so important to us, fight all forms of abuse is crucial. You can't just put, oh, you know, let's fight, you know, homophobic abuse, racial abuse, anti-Semitic abuse. But if, if there's, if those people are a referee, they're fair game. We don't care yeah. what color creeds or they are. And it's this, it's making, it's awakening, you know, the, the world's really to understand that, like, you know, refs aren't fair game. They are human. They are, you know, they're not there just to be abused and shouted at just because you think you've got a right to do so. And that's why our social media campaign was important to um, to show people, you know, look, you can't go on Twitter and say that. Football clubs yeah. do it, you know, famous people do it. And the amount of apologies I get, and I actually put a tweet out saying you've talked to me and that because I'll phone them up. And they, they always understand. And it's like a famous quote of throwing one starfish back into the sea at a time. It helped that particular starfish when there's another million of them to go. And I think it's a it's a long road we're on. But I think four years ago, no one was really interested in death abuse. And they just, it just happened and they accepted it. And we're trying to put a spotlight on it. That, no, it's not acceptable. And the game suffers all round if we allow this to happen at grassroots particularly. Well, I mean, it's, it's getting worse at the, the top level. As I said in my intro, to you, Martin. I mean, VAR is not doing referees any favours at the moment because all that's happening now on, on Match of the Day and on Sky and on BT Sport is that they've got two referees to have a go at in every game, not just one. And, um, you know, the, I mean, the thing is as well, I, I noticed with um, Gillette, is his name, I think? Uh, is it the, the Australian ref? Oh, yeah. Gerard, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gerard, yeah, who, who's getting... There's, there's several commentaries recently where they've made... It's, they've scathingly mentioned that he's Australian, as though some, as though they don't expect the highest standards, and it's it, it must be frustrating. But so on that note, Martin, it, it, it's only in recent years that football has started properly looking after the welfare of of youngsters, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen year olds who who are not offered a professional contract. I mean. Thank God the days are long gone when they just got a handshake and they were kicked out of the door. Yeah. But does but does football offer counselling to to referees who have been abused or, or assaulted, or is that delegated to you? Is there any process by which a referee has been horribly abused? And as you say, at the weekends, the FA shut, but he wants would 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 clubs wouldn't offer that? Would, they, would so would you offer that for them? Yeah, yeah, we do. And in fairness to the FA, you know, I've always said this about the FA. The FA. Have, I've got many good people, but the but the the bad people who don't seem to really put the the interest of referees at heart is growing bigger and bigger and bigger, and they're always the loudest ones. The FA brought in the mental health first aiders in every county FA, which is a really positive thing to do, and we've we've done the same. And in fairness to the referee association, even though I disagree with many many 
facet of the referee association. They have got a wonderful welfare team that that, that helps referees who, who have been in these cases and defend them in the case when people appeal. So the answer is yes, but it's a small yes. It could be so much better and 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 so much more professional. It's not really in your face that if this happens this will happen, you know, there's no sort of pathway of support dedicated, but in fairness to the FA, particularly under Mark Bullingham, I must admit that he does seem to be a man who's trying to put referees a bit more at the front of, of what they do, and Andy Ambler, who's the ex-Millwall chief executive, is now high profile and the referees department is under his, you know, one of his departments is, is under him. He's, you know, he said to me, he's asking for more money to support referees because you know, the budget isn't isn't as, as good as it should be for supporting referees. So I really feel recently there is there is a, a move to support referees properly by the FA. But I'm yet to see it. And I'm I'm really yet to see what's happening. But going back to VAR, we've always said the only VAR that we're against is violence against referees. Yes, yeah, when they put when they put more more money into violence against referees, I think the whole game will improve. I really do. I I, I suppose as well referees certainly at a high level, will be terrified of the media finding out that they've had any sort of counselling because, you know, players will, if players discover a weakness, they'll go for it, won't they? It's, um, we, we, we are a football finance pod, Martin, so I, I would like to talk a little bit about money. It, it's actually, I've found this, I've been researching referees for a different project. It's really difficult to pinpoint how much Premier League referees get, but it seems to yeah. be... According to which website you visit, it, it seems to be a salary of a sort of somewhere around forty thousand, with an extra twelve hundred to fifteen hundred uh, per match. And at grassroots level, it's only around thirty pound a game. What, what are your thoughts on the pay at both ends of the, the referee scale? I, I think that those figures, the, the Premier League lads, are definitely on on more than that. They are okay. Yeah, hundred grandish plus. You know, when 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 the when the FIFA referees as well, which. You might not know about there's different levels of FIFA referee. They get more money because the FIFA referees. They get more games when they do. They go abroad and a fee on uh, top of that. So, right, so right. it can yeah it can very easily scale up. But you are right, it, it is vague and and really people always think it's a bit crass in it talking about someone's wages and you know it's it's but it's it's not as much as, as probably every Premier League referee is on a week. Premier League players yeah, on a yeah, week, yeah, yeah, and they stand in a line with these people who are multimillionaires and they've got to manage them on TV. You know, in front of millions of people across the world. So, you know, I, I think I don't think they'll never be on enough. To be honest, I really do, do believe that. You know, they should increase the pay where they can attract everybody, rather than people who have got more money outside the game. You could be wonderful referees at that level. The conference level, like I said, the National League, they're on about 160, 165 pounds a game. EFL referees are on about 550 plus expenses, meal allowance, and stuff like that. And then the bottom, they are all around about 35. 40 quid so it's it's i don't think money i don't think increasing the money will will be the problem because in rugby in rugby they don't get paid until a very high level and there's hardly any abuse there so yeah. i don't I, I wouldn't tie in with money i just think it's it's this desensitization that you know when you're in the middle as a as a, as a male female you're just fair game and it's just changing this mindset that particularly with children Kevin, one of the huge problems is now, the FA brought out this campaign where they, got, they identify children now, child referees who are under the age of 18, with a purple shirt or green socks or an armband. Oh, right. You know, I don't know if you're aware of that. And that is no, to, no. Yeah, that is to identify that if you are threatening or, or being audible to that referee, that's a child. Um, and we said for a while, I, I think that was a backward step because you know, a lot of these children don't want to be identified as a child. Yeah, you, know, a bit, you, know, you know what I mean? So like, they won't, yeah, they won't wear it. 
and and I just don't like the idea that I, oh look you know don't shout at this one because he's a child but but this one's okay because he's an adult Shit, so I yeah. think it's it's flawed it's completely flawed and when I wrote to to Mark Bullingham recently I said you know we need to look at deducting points if you get found guilty of threatening or abusing a child's referee you lose points just lose because money money doesn't work in the game you know there's the yellow cards and red cards have had a financial punishment for, for decades and it's, it's getting worse so clearly money doesn't work so let's look at points I, I remember an interview with John Fashionu uh, years ago when he said uh, semi-seriously he, he said that every referee should be given a sports car because if players turned up in the car park and said wow that's a brilliant car who's that belong to and he found out it was the refs they would have a little bit more respect for him than they would Otherwise, which is kind of an insight into footballers. Would you just before, we've we've got a couple more questions for you, um, Martin? Can you just remind our listeners who Mark Bullingham is? By the way, sorry. Oh, Mark Bullingham is the chief chief executive of the FA, and someone I, I really I am seeing really good signs in changing the game for referees positively. Right. Um, I, I suppose the money at grassroots level, like you say, referees don't come into it for money, but. It, it might help retention of referees a little bit more if they were paid more at grassroots level. But if we can't pay them more money, Martin, as compensation, how do we protect them against what's happening to them? I mean, uh, apart from changing the entire culture of English football, which, which will take 30 years, what, what can we do just in the short term? Because, I mean, what you're telling us is, is horrifying. And it's, and it's like having to be, you know, Kieran and I are, mature sensible decent people i like to think but you know you having to remind us that some of those referees being shouted at are children mm. and that's awful that's awful it just didn't occur to me but so what do we do then how do we how do we how do we build walls of protection around these young match officials well first another thing we've, we've suggested is uh when when someone is found guilty of, of threatening a child's referee it's, ne- it's never been framed principally as a safeguarding breach, but safeguarding breaches can have, you know, different um, effects on, on a coach. They can take his badge away. They can stop him coaching. You know, whereas if they find him 30 quid, well, he's going to be back in three weeks after his ban and continue the abuse. So I think framing it differently, particularly to, to referees who are 18 and under. And of course, the, F, the FA said, we're a non-band, mitigates that. He should have known that was a child as well. So that's the only positivity, I think, about the armbands in regards to identifying children. But deducting points, absolutely deducting points, mm. will make people realise that, you know, these people who they have on the line, they were often parents. You know, there's a consequence to the team. So take ownership of who you have watching your game. I also think when we had our body cam campaign, and we were, we were absolutely overjoyed that the, the IFAB says, you know, we're allowing the FA to do a body cam trial. We've been pushing that for a long, long time because we know people will see their effort of body cam. I know it's not a good image, I get that. But as a deterrent, as an evidence gatherer, and as a training aid for referees, I think it's a no-brainer, which I'm really pleased that when they announced they're going to look at a body cam pilot at grassroots level, I think that would be the biggest positive move for protecting referees at a grassroots level. So would you like to the FA push that out to IFAB? And and finally, and I know from reading your website that this is a very important issue to you, Martin. When will we start to see more Black and Asian officials, more women officials, more ex-footballers uh, taking up the whistle? Uh, again, in the letter, I mean, this letter to um, 
to Matt Bullingham. They, they asked me they had this 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 new change, a referee and um, culture change and the strategy, and he consulted me. I met with them, and one of the things that I got back to them is that I we got to address uh, the problem with racism differently than they do. The it, it's clear some areas have not got any BAME representation at all, right. but they would get the same amount of money to address it as someone who who lives say in in Toxteth or Brixton or St Paul's and Bristol. You need to be more more laser like in how to address it and give the funding yeah. to the pl- places where we know will be get affect- affected. It's no use like giving free suntan lotion to people who live in Greenland. Do you know what yeah. I mean? So we need to do the funding and and look at it look at it in a real considered manner to address the areas where there's a high representation of the Beams community. My last game, well, one of my, my last games was at Uriah Rennie. I got injured on the line at Aston Villa against Burnley years ago. And there's been no black referees, black or yeah. brown referees in the middle since yeah. then. We've only had Sam Allison come through and 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 then the Singhs brothers who've come through recently. But it's um it's a huge problem, and, and I just feel that the FA's never really recognised it. Also, when David Ellery made those racial comments that he admitted, yeah, he was chairman, he was he was president of the referee association, and the referee association didn't condemn those comments. So that put the referee association on a back foot that I don't think they've really recovered from since. They should have really... Lord Usley, who was, who was uh, the main man at kick it out, he actually called for LRE design, but the referee association didn't say a peep, and I think that was a, that was a mistake. Mm. I think when we all get hold of it and, and speak out as one, players, clubs, and referees, I think things will be able to change. I, I do have one more question, actually, Martin, and it's an indication of how my mind works because you said Greenland, <laughs> you said you said you said Greenland, and I suddenly went, oh, abroad, foreign. Um, are you are you are you working with with referees organisations in other countries? And is this, uh, I wouldn't say uniquely uh, a British problem, but but do you think the referees get more support? Yeah, certainly in continental Europe, are you working with with referees and officials around the world as well? Yeah, yeah, particularly on our social media. We get lots of people contact us and send us clips, and we've had so many clips of you know, people getting seriously injured in Malta, in, in Argentina. You know, And historically, people would we put a video out four years ago of a, a referee getting surrounded on a pitch and getting his head kicked, and basically no one was ever suspended or that as a player. Yeah, to, uh, yeah. And when that went on, uh, Dan Rowan from the BBC ran with it for one million views, and everyone said, what, what part of South America was that? It was in London. It was in no, London. Well. It was in London. I, I sent you the clip. It's a horrendous clip. And we've we then people started sending all these other clips. We had um another referee in London who got punched three times. Uh, he got suspended for ten years. On appeal, the the FA reduced it to five, which Jesus. is an unbelievable backward move, which they're, they're telling me they're, they're gonna do different things to address that sort of avenue, but not not to be seen. So there's many cases that this is a world problem. Which is why I was so delighted that IFAB of allowing the FA to do this body cam pilot, which should encourage other other nationalities to do it, you know, around the world. And one of the things we worked on, which I got a bit of stick for, if I was honest, Kev, we've we've created an app. It's going to be a free app. It's turned your phone into a body camera. I know, like you get those people who go for a run and they put the on their arm, they've got to yeah, snap it, yeah, yeah. Put the phone. We got one that goes around your chest. Twelve free, oh, free. You can use that. So it's not going to cost you 200 quid for a body cam. Just use your phone, put it on selfie video, and you've got it. So we know it's going to be a real effective way of addressing it across the world. And, you know, with that, this is the first positive, real positive move I've seen by IFAB in addressing 
uh, the abuse of referees and assault of referees just ever really. I, I was delighted to see uh, this pilot. But in fairness to the FA, I know they've asked IFA when can we do it and what's happening, but nothing's nothing's gone on. Uh, Martin, it's been a pleasure. Well, actually, it hasn't been a pleasure to talk to you in a way because of some of the things you've told us are, are horrendous. But it's it, it's been brilliant insight, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. And I I suspect we'll probably get you back because there's, there's undoubtedly more to explore on this topic. But in in the meantime, I just wish you the very best of luck with everything you're doing and and let's hope that you know it doesn't take 20 years for a complete culture change but mm. c- keep up the keep up the good work martin and, and you know if there's anything we can do to help then please let us know that's ever so kind thank you guys you've got a wonderful podcast and i wish you all a continued success and thanks again for having me on kieran i i, I had i have to say reservations about um interviewing Martin Cassidy only because we are a football finance pod and there wasn't much to talk about by way of finances but I'm very glad I'm very glad that we did because I mean some of that insight we got there and we we could have been talking to him for a lot longer it's it's just horrifying to think what's going on and it's it was a sobering interview in a way Kieran wasn't it I mean Martin's a brilliant speaker and a very funny man but it's some of the things he was telling us, it's difficult to be funny about, wasn't it? Yes, yes. Um, I, I, I think he, he represented the case uh, for referees absolutely superbly. And, and as somebody that I, I, I did my refereeing exams when I was um, 16 mm. and started to referee. Uh, and, and, and there was, there was, yeah, we didn't have the internet. We, you, you were on your own. Um, and as somebody that has been threatened myself, uh, to know that there's actually now there is a support network out there is, is absolutely fantastic. Um, and as Martin himself says, he's looking forward to the day when Ref Support UK is no longer required, mm. but we're a long, long way away from that. Um, when the culture is, you know, if, if a player makes a mistake then that's all part of the game. If a referee does something which is wrong in the opinion of somebody else, and, and, quite often, and normally the referee's right, um, then that, uh, that gives people carte blanche to, to abuse and threaten. Um, and also, I think, you know, as, as Martin said, the referees are local, and yeah. you, you, there is a genuine danger of, you know, you're out on a Saturday night or a Friday night and somebody who you've... Uh, you've had conflict with sees you and, and things can get really unpleasant. Yeah. I I really don't mean this to sound flippant, Kieran, but part of the problem is that at Palace's next home game, uh, I'll be in the Porson's arms beforehand telling people about this interview and they'll all be going, oh, crikey, that's terrible. We didn't know. And the minute Craig Porson inevitably gives uh, uh, Palace a bad decision, I'll be up on my feet shouting abuse at the mm. referee. That's the that that is the issue. It's the nature of the football fan. But I, you know, I, I will I will try and moderate my behaviour. I mean, it's it's less of a problem at that level, but a grassroots level. And anybody listening to this who plays football at grassroots level, leave the referees alone for the love of God. 
thanks to everyone who's donated to the pod via our, our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod, that would be very kind of you. And go to patreon.com slash price of football. Our next live show, as you know, is now taking place at Plymouth Argyle's Home Park on Tuesday, the 13th of December. I can't wait to be in Plymouth again. Some tickets are still available because we had to move the date and you can get them from Plymouth Argyle's website. Uh, if you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. And in the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Um, well, thanks as always, folks, for the support for the show. Um, a, a number of you have been in contact with me and us uh, over one of the stories we ran on Sunday. We'll, I, I, I'll, I'll be giving a full full apology uh, in respect of that uh, on some, on next Sunday's show. But it, it, it's great the fact that you do keep us on our toes and you engage, engage with uh, all of the stories as well. Um, if you want to support the show, Patreon's is as cheap as uh, you know, a pound a month. And for £3 a month, you can listen to the show without adverts if, if you prefer to go down that particular route. Um, the other way you can support the show is to go on to your podcast app, and uh, if you can give us a review, uh, it helps us in the charts. It helps with the algorithms. If you can give us five stars, uh, it, it genuinely makes a difference. Um, and by all accounts, it doesn't make a blind bit of difference what you choose to write in the interview because the Apple, uh, the Apple algorithm looks at the stars and not, uh, and not the words. So um, you, you could write, you could even say that you would rather have the show presented by Hugh Edwards. Now, Hugh Edwards is a man... Who I, I think if, if anybody's entitled after the shift he's put in to to start wearing a man bun and buy a Harley Davidson in a midlife crisis, I think he's entitled to one. And and Beaker from the Muppets, and it wouldn't make a blind bit of difference uh, to myself or Kevin. Our egos can cope with it. Yeah, it's it's nice to know that the uh, Amazon, like all of us, Kieran, uh, we are all of us in the gutter that some of us are looking at the stars. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. The price of football. I'm for the